0: This system is broken. I appreciate parents. You guys worry about us and you're telling us to go this traditional route, but maybe it worked for you back in 1980s when houses cost $200,000. It doesn't work for us anymore.
1: Welcome to the Fi Show, where you get a behind the scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin.
2: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, but I could not be doing this thing alone, so let's check in with my awesome co-host, Justin. What's up, man?
1: Man, I had a pretty interesting weekend this weekend. So there was a new REI opening up in New Hampshire, and so they had all these crazy free events up near the mountains, one of which was the Tacos and Chacos party, where it was like black tie, but with Chacos. And they had free food and drinks, and they also had all kinds of stuff going through the weekend. So we got to demo some mountain bikes for free, you know, take some shuttles to the mountains. so. All in all, it was a pretty awesome, frugal weekend. How about yourself? Yeah, man. I had a family cookout
2: on Saturday, just kind of hung around on Sunday, but I'm getting pretty sad because this is the last weekend in August, and that means summer is coming to a close. And for us guys up in Massachusetts here, that means the cold weather is going to start rolling in. So I cannot say I'm too excited about that, but I can say I'm pretty excited about our guests today. And speaking of escaping the cold weather and basically doing whatever the heck you want, Christy and Bryce have been traveling the globe for the past four years. They're from Millennial Revolution. Don't want to give away their whole story, though. Take it away, Christy and Bryce.
3: When we first, I mean, it starts with most people when they first get out of university or college, as you Americans call it. And then, you know, my financial system was basically just kind of like income, bank account, beer, right? So that, that it was a really simple pipeline and it worked out really, really well. I got re- I drank a lot during those first few months. And then eventually we kind of said, all right, we should probably do something a little bit more adulty and this kind of stuff. So we kind of went down and looked to see what everyone else was doing and see what our parents were telling us to do. And we were following that prescriptive path at the time that we were trying to save up money and buy a house just like everybody else. And, you know, buy a house, get into a big mortgage, spend the next 25 years paying it off, keep working at, at your company until you're 65 and then retire with a pension. That was the idea. Didn't really work out that well because, you know. As we know, that prescriptive model that our baby boomer parents kind of told us worked really great for them because when they were started to work, a house was about two or three X the average family salary at the time. The average house over the family salary was a ratio of about two. So a co- like a family that was earning about $50,000 could buy a house for $100,000, $150,000. Now, those days are long gone, right? I mean, like a house, especially if you live in a big metropolitan city like New York or LA or for us, Toronto, it's like 20X or something like that. Like a single detached house that's like tiny could easily cost seven, eight hundred thousand over a million dollars. And that's not even like a nice place. So we were looking at trying to get into the property ladder for about six, seven years. And we were saving like crazy. We were still kind of living in like a relatively, not tiny, but a relatively modest apartment in kind of like an area about 30, 30, 45 minutes away from the downtown core. And we were saving up money, but every time it seemed like we were saving up money, the house prices would just run away even further. So it felt like this this goalpost that kept moving and we kept trying to like save towards this goal that we could never achieve. And it got really, really frustrating until eventually one, one point I sat down and I realized that our down payment fund that was only supposed to be like 50 to 100 grand because we had waited so long waiting for a good deal to show up that it never did. It had grown to about half a million dollars. Now it's was just a saving. That was just a <laughs> saving money. Right. Like like putting money into the savings account and trying to see like, OK, at that point, I kind of went, this is kind of a lot of money. And do we want to. So we had two choices. One was we could throw it all towards a house, get into even more debt, like turn all half a million dollars cash into $750,000 worth of debt and spend the next 25 years paying that off. But then I kind of went, all right, let's see what else we can do now. So that's when I started going on the internet, reading up a lot of books like um, Intelligent Investor. I found blogs like JL Collins's blog, Money Mustache obviously is the blog that everybody kind of read at the time. And we learned about this whole how to invest and how to turn into passive income and how to use that towards going into financial independence. And then we kind of went, huh. So I ran the math and I realized we could either get into enough debt to last us for the next 25 years and then maybe, maybe we'll get back to zero when we're in our 50s or based on our savings rate at the time. And if we continue doing that and investing it, we might hit fire in three years. And at that point, it was just kind of like a, well, duh, let's do that. But Chrissy did not have this a uh, very no. good reaction to it. No, no. That. He
0: showed me the spreadsheet. I was like, this is wrong.
3: This is <laughs> there is no <laughs>
0: way we can become millionaires in three to five years. There's something wrong with your math. So I checked over his spreadsheet multiple times, and it still was correct But I still didn't believe it because my background was that I I didn't actually grow up in Canada. I was actually born in China. So, like, at one point my family lived in poverty. So, from that mindset, I had, like, a lot of scarcity, you know, in my childhood. So, when he said, yeah, this is going to work and put it into the stock market, I was like, one, I don't want to put it into the stock market. Number two, there's still something wrong with your math because there's no way we can become millionaires in our 30s. Like, that's just... I can't, my brain does not comprehend this. Brain doesn't compute, right? <laughs> but then I, I decided to go along with it because, I mean, I didn't want to put it into a house. In addition to what Bryce said following the prescriptive path, there was a lot of flashing red lights in my life that told me that path didn't work because one of my coworkers actually collapsed and almost died from, at his desk from overwork. Like he was working 14-hour days over multiple years and he was trying to struggle to pay off a mortgage, right? And on top of that, they were starting to outsource jobs within the company. So it's like instability, housing was way too expensive. I saw people stressed out. I saw people paying their mortgage. And I thought, you know, even if the the math seems a bit you know, unrealistic and even though it seems correct, I don't think this is gonna work out. Let's try it and see what happens. And it actually did work out and much faster than I was expecting because I was expecting, oh, probably the math says three years. It's probably going to take us five years at least. It took us three years. We actually became millionaires at the ages of 31 and 32. And then uh, soon after that, we retired and we traveled the world. And we've been doing that for the last four years.
1: So I'd be curious to kind of take a step back because... It's obvious that your your goals change as far as what you're going to do with your money. Like you decided not going down the traditional path, not going after the house, we're going to retire with it. But at the same time, you were obviously already being fairly successful at saving money, even though it was for a different goal. So how did you get there? Like what were, what were the tools you were using and what got you going down that path to save enough money to where you did wake up one day and have $500,000? Because not many people even do that part.
0: Great question. Okay. So one of the things I attribute to this is actually the scarcity mindset. So, I mean, when I was, you know, going through uh, right after school, I read a lot of books that talks about entrepreneurship and business books and things like that. And they always dump on the scarcity mindset, right? You can't have a scarcity (laughs) mindset to succeed. You got to have abundance mindset and that's fine. But the thing is people who have the scarcity mindset, it's not something that they choose. It's something that, you know, you were born with, you were born into poverty and there's nothing you can do about it but the way i look at it is there's one upside to that is because you know having grown up in that environment in china i had this perspective once i you know grew up in the west that it's really you don't really need all these fancy things in order to be happy like when i was little i had very little having your parents there with you and having your family there with you and being full that was that was already being wealthy to me right so when our friends were going out and getting you know the really nice fancy condo downtown getting a car and it has to be a nice car, not just any car, eating out all the time, going out, consistently buying things all the time. We just didn't really, like, when our salaries kept increasing, we didn't fall for that lifestyle creep that inevitably happens, right? When you get a raise, you're like, oh my God, I have all this extra money. All right, what do I do with it? If I don't spend this money, then, you know, I work for it. What's the point of this money? For us, it was just, you know, we're very happy. We are willing to spend at least five to $10,000 a year on vacation, but everything else, like the three main categories, which is our housing, our transportation and our food, we optimize the crap out of that, right? So instead of renting, you know, $2,000 fancy condo downtown, we rented the top floor of a townhouse 30 minutes from work rather than walking distance to everything. We didn't buy a car because if you live in a big city, yeah, sure, your housing is more expensive, but you don't need a car. So we just took the subway everywhere. And sometimes we biked, sometimes we walked. And then in terms of food, so Bryce at one point was spending $400 a month just on beer. Yeah, that was my bad. (laughs) And I was like, do you realize this is how much we used to pay for rent in college? That was our entire rent check. Again, I drank a lot. He drank a lot of beer. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, going out to eat, we would go out to eat all the time. And I realized I was gaining a lot of weight and I wasn't tracking how much money was going out. After a while, I realized that, you know, if we cook at home and we you know have a healthier diet i decided to go on the paleo diet which helped me lose 15 pounds in one year and that got pretty addictive because <laughs> i was like hey i don't have to go out to eat because everything's full of carbs i can control my food i can buy higher quality food reduce my grocery bills by half and i get to lose weight it's a win-win situation
3: yeah we were eating steak and like kale chips every night it Yeah, was exactly. great it was awesome.
0: <laughs> so you know it's a win-win situation so really for us it was not falling for lifestyle inflation and keeping track of the three most important categories, which is housing, food, and transportation. And if you blow 5,000 to 10,000 a year on vacation, that's totally fine.
3: Yeah, an example of that is of, of like, you know, how there's a David Bach idea of, or I I forget which David it was, Ramsey or Bach, one of those two, where they kind of went, oh, yeah, you know, it's all about coffees. You have to cut out the little things in life, then, you know, that over time that adds up. And, you know, mathematically, that's true. But if you get the big stuff right, the little coffees, like, don't really matter in the long run. A good example of this is that, like, we didn't live with a lot of deprivation or even with the luxury she hinted at the fact that we took vacations every year that cost about like 5000 10000 it was like a really big travel year but on top of that she was also into luxury purses for a while isn't it right yeah, you know, you dumping it on me cuz of booze let's talk about you and your bag addiction
0: let's move on from this topic no i think we should, i think we should
3: i think we should dive into it
0: okay for a while, I did I did kind of fall for that like what I, I like to call this the immigrant rebound effect, which is once you have money, when you grow up in poverty, you're like I can buy all the things, right? In the beginning, so there was one point in time in which I was obsessed with Coach purses and you know different name brand purses, and it got to the point where I started watching like purse unboxing videos. So he would come home from work, and I'm like glued to the screen, like it's the best action movie ever. And I'm it, she's like what? He's like what are you watching? Are you literally watching someone open up a box with a purse on it? At
3: one point, you had like four of them hanging in your closet.
0: What I realized after the fourth or fifth one was that it's, it's kind of turning into a hedonic treadmill. Where yeah. the first best thing ever, and I, I spent a whole week, and I was so happy. And then the second person, like, yeah, it's kind of fun, but not as fun anymore. And then the third and the fourth and the fifth. And then afterwards, you're like getting the same high. It's like when you're, you know, this addiction, but then the addiction after a while tapers off, we're not really getting the same excitement. So at that point, I started to kind of go away from the consumerist type of thinking and more towards creativity. So at that time, we started writing uh, like a children's novel on the side to try to do something productive rather than fill our entire apartment with with purses.
2: One thing Justin and I love digging into though on the Fi Show is kind of just peeling back the layers of the onion. So when you first met, I just want to have some context of timeline. I know Christy, you mentioned you grew up in China, really poor family. You had this frugality mindset and then you had, what was it called? Like the immigrant flip or whatever. rebound, Rebound. (laughs) The immigrant rebound. 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 And Bryce, (laughs) I don't know exactly if you were spending a ton of money on other things other than $400 a beer a month. (laughs) Were you like spending all your paycheck? But What did that dynamic look like when you first met each other? And where exactly did you meet each other in college, at work? I'd just love to hear some of that background.
3: Yeah, so uh, we met in college. We were lab partners, so it was nerd love at first sight. (laughs) But uh, as a result of that, we were in the same program, and we were kind of navigating the wild, wild west of tech together. We did come from different backgrounds, but I wouldn't say that there was a source of conflict. I mean, like I came from a more middle-class background. She grew up in poverty. And the result of growing up in poverty, you it hones your mind into kind of squeezing every last bit of value out of every nickel kind of thing, right? Even today, when I walk into a grocery store, I look at like a wheel of cheese and I'm like, I don't know, is that a good price? And then she's like, no, you moron. You can get it like 20% less over there. And I was like, oh, right. Cause I, I don't retain these things, right? But on the other hand, that scarcity mindset was one of the things that caused us a big factor into what caused us to build that initial cash seed of like what would eventually become our FI portfolio because we were living frugally, finding these ways of optimizing the spending in our lives while not cutting out anything that made us happy. So that's really important. I mean, you can't, it's not about deprivation. It's about finding ways of spending less, but keeping the same level of happiness, which is what we successfully were able to do. But when it comes time to learn how to invest, which is also something you need to do in order to learn how, in order to become FI, her scarcity mindset makes it so that she's extremely nervous about investing oh, yeah. when because like when you are in the stock market like a one percent drop like it was like a three percent drop in the stock market that happened just like just like the other day and that can be like you know tens of thousands of dollars now like when your portfolio is big enough. But what Chrissy didn't realize is that by just simply shoving everything into a savings account that's earning like less than two percent, she's actually losing money to inflation. So it actually at some point she needed to kind of hand like I needed to hand over at the beginning my reins of trust to her to manage the budget. And just because I just trusted her that she would find the best deal and everything. I just kind of I would let I would unleash her onto the store and then somehow she would come back with like four bags of groceries for eight dollars.
0: Uh, Somehow the grocery store would owe me money. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Somehow. I don't know how she does this kind of stuff. But at some point in that, uh, around 2012, when we started realizing that we needed to invest, she had to hand over the reins of trust to me to be able to handle, to be able to kind of navigate the stock market properly. And I don't, that was not easy for you, was it? That
0: was was horrifying. (laughs) Because, you know, growing up in poverty, like every single penny that, you earn, you think about this is how many people can I can feed back home, like how many of my family members who are still back in China, I can feed. So every time you put in a $1,000 in 2008, and then that money just immediately disappears the next day, then you think, oh, my God, I could have fed my entire village and this is terrifying. I don't want to be investing. Right. So it's very it's helpful in the beginning. But then later on, you have to have a combination of the freedom mindset and the scarcity mindset. Otherwise. You know, you'll just lose money to inflation, and then you'll never be able to turn your money into a passive income stream. Actually, this
3: is something that we've noticed a lot because now we we travel the world and we meet a lot of FI folks and people who we read about, like you know, a lot of the bloggers that we all kind of grew up with, and I I kind of know a lot of them personally now. And I realize that when you dig it into a little bit deeper, this pairing is very common. One person grew up in poverty of some sort, whether it was, and sometimes it's not like you know as as bad as Christie, but it can be, but you know, whether you grew up like in some rural village in the Appalachian Mountains or in like wherever, like one person tasted poverty and that kind of gave them this chip on their shoulder that, and that gave them the drive to, to either never want to experience that again or want to accumulate as much as possible in order to prove whoever wrong. But on the other hand, the other person would grow up in a more middle class and a more optimistic mindset. And that's what allowed them to kind of combine those two skill sets and turn it into the superpower that we now call fire. So, this pairing up is actually quite common. And I would argue, actually, quite beneficial to helping you achieve fire because you kind of need those two opposite skill sets, but you also need the two people to trust each other well enough to give each other the reins when the time comes.
1: So, Christy, I feel like you were explaining like my exact life, like as myself, you know, your story, because. I'm the same way with the groceries. I'm the same way with that kind of growing up in that, from a poor environment, that scarcity mindset. I had the same huge fears of not wanting to invest. And I know you said you just kind of had to hand over that trust when you looked at investing. But if there's somebody out there who still comes from a background, a similar situation than maybe me and you did, who's having trouble investing, how do you get them over that hump? Like, how did how did you convince yourself that this was okay, you know, if they don't have someone that they can just hand the trust over to?
0: That's a great question. Well, one thing that was the biggest realization was the fact that I was losing money to inflation. Right. So that was number one realization, because I thought if you put all your money into a savings account, it's going to be there. You don't have to worry about it going down. It's it's going to be totally safe. But what we actually think is safe is not safe. Right. It's the opposite of what you think. So I would say for the listeners out there, I know we, we do a lot of reader cases on our blog. And one of the things we say is you need to wade into the water if you're not familiar with it, if you don't have somebody else to support you instead of jumping into the deep end, you know, wade your way into the water with a small amount that you're investing with at first to get comfortable with, before you just dump all your assets in there, right? For me, it was really, really scary for us to take every single penny we ever paid and just dump it into the stock market. And that's absolutely reasonable for someone with that kind of scarcity mindset. So I would say, number one, realize that a savings account is not safe. And number two, wade into the investing waters. Don't just jump into the deep end.
3: And three, learn about the learn about the research. I mean, like uh, whenever I ran into trouble, cause you know, we started investing Well, we invested our main kind of FI portfolio in 2012, but I actually started investing for a brief period of time in 2008. And investing in an environment like that, in which everybody on the news is screaming, the sky is falling, everyone's and and the Russians are going to invade or whatever the heck they were saying back then. That was like a trial by fire. But back then, the research, which is the research that we base off our investment style off of, which is index investing plus modern portfolio theory, told us the right thing to do in that situation, which was to us stocks crashed, bonds were going up. And the correct thing to do there in that situation is to sell bonds that when you're over your target allocation and then buy the stocks that have been that have been plummeting. So that's what we did. By understanding the research and understanding what the right things you're supposed to do in that situation is, even though we felt terrified, and even though at one point I remember, you know, having my finger over the sell all button and, be, and really, really wanting to press it, I did the opposite, I bought more. And as a result of that, I came out of 2008 without losing any money like a year later, even though the stock market didn't actually recover in 2012, I got all my money back in 2009. And we write about all this stuff on our blog. We write an investment workshop, which is a free course. It's not even a course, because you don't have to pay for it, but just a series of articles that we have on our site that teaches you all step-by-step how to how to invest. And you know, we also wrote the book, Quit Like a Millionaire, that is now out. And you're right, it is a little scary because there's no one book out there or there's no one resource out there that tells you exactly everything that you need to do in order to learn how to become FI. And I had to piece it together from different blogs and different books and figure all that kind of stuff out the book that we wrote is supposed to be that resource. So we created it because it was that hole in the market and it wasn't there for when we were learning how to invest. And the feedback that we've been getting on it so far has been really like, I wish I had seen this like 20 years ago.
0: <laughs> yeah, so one of the things we tried to do in the book is because I've read a lot of finance books and they all have pretty much an optimistic narrator. That's like, yes, you know, it'll always go up, or you, know, you have to invest an in abundance mindset, abundance mindset, abundance mindset. So what I tried to do with this book is try to reach out the other people like me who don't have that optimistic outlook, who don't have that risky kind of thinking that it's gonna be okay and I wanna to talk to them because I have a lot of insecurities and to everyone out there who actually grew up in, in scarcity, you are not alone. <laughs> You were absolutely not alone. I had to struggle with the exact same emotions and fears, and I still came out okay at the end because of the math and because of the theory behind it.
3: Yeah, Christy is probably one of the most pessimistic fire folks that you'll ever see,
0: because <laughs> Cody, you know, you and I know a couple personally as
3: well. Like, they're always, they're insanely optimistic people, and that's great for them, but they're like, it's gonna be fine, man, just make more money. It doesn't matter how much you spend and and, and, and all this kind of stuff, and, uh, <laughs> that's, and that's great. But the thing is, most people aren't like that. I, I argue a lot of people aren't like that. And again, we're probably one of the more pessimistic people out there because in, in, we're always thinking about what could could possibly go wrong. What happens when there's a stock market crash? What happens if you retire and then stocks drop like 25%? How do you recover from that? How do you keep from like having your money run out? How do you know whether it's going to be okay? And we don't address that by just saying, it'll be fine, just think happy thoughts and farting rainbows or uh, unicorns <laughs> farting rainbows or whatever the heck those people talk about. We, we're engineers, so we're only comfortable pulling the trigger and leaving because we had built these like multi-layered series of fail-safes and backup plans and and this kind of stuff. So it's like, if the stock market goes down here, like here's what you do. And the stock market goes down here for like three years, here's what you do. And so like, we, we kind of, for ourselves, created this ultra pessimistic plan of like, what do you do in every possible situation? And that's why, and only when every single reasonable outcome was like covered, we'll we be comfortable with doing it. And we end up writing all those safety plans in the book and, and now it's out there for everyone to see.
2: So I know that you did quit like millionaires and you traveled like gods and goddesses and we're going to get into that in a second. I do want to give the listeners just some context. So you actually did just touch on one thing I wanted to know and I was going to ask what you did for your career. You did mention your engineers. Clearly, you guys are spreadsheet driven. You're both looking over the spreadsheet, checking all the numbers, all that good stuff. Could you just give us an idea of like what you were making, what your savings rate was when you were A, like when you first started this journey and B, when you hit that, was it in 2012 when you hit the $500,000 saved up?
0: Yep. So it took us around six to seven years to, to hit that number. And as engineers, our salary started out when we just came out of school. In that first year, we only made 60000 But over time, we got multiple promotions over the nine years of our career that it took us to get to the million. And our savings rate went from 50% to 72% by the time we retired. Yeah, so we definitely had higher than average salaries being an engineer but I would not say that I started out as a spreadsheet nerd nor did I start out as an engineer. I wanted to go into creative writing and be an author. I was actually terrible at physics and programming. Those were my two worst subjects in high school. So <laughs> of course you picked of, So of course I picked engineering. That's the obvious choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, really, so yeah. what I did was because one of the reasons again this is a, again from scarcity mindset is that I didn't want to drag my family back to poverty because they were still supporting family back in china by the time i was picking you know a college career so i actually did this analysis and i talk about this in quit like a millionaire which i call the uh- pay over tuition or the pot score. So what you do is you take how much you would get paid over minimum wage divided by how much it costs you for the tuition. So that gives you like a figure that shows for each dollar you put in how much of your return investment is. So for me, and when I evaluated creative writing, it's pretty much like a negative return. (laughs) So it didn't make any sense for me to go in there. And then based on a couple of other careers, I evaluated computer engineering had the best pot score and actually turned out to be really good because we started writing a children's book on the side while I was working. And I found out that 93% of published books in the States sell less than a thousand copies. So I would have been looking at maybe making $5,000 a year (laughs) as a children's (laughs) author. So I would have had to get another job anyway. So even though I wasn't good at physics to begin with, I had to work really hard at it Whereas you know, for Bryce, it was very easy. He just kind of looks at it and he understands it within 45 minutes. It takes me three days to understand a basic engineering concept. It was a slog getting through engineering school for me, but it was totally worth it because we were able to, like, it was it was a longer than normal program. It was a five-year program instead of a four-year program. But we were able to work at the same time that we went to school. So we, when we graduated, we had paid back all our tuition while we were working and going to school. So that gave me a huge leg up afterwards. So I, I would highly recommend doing the analysis and using the POT score whenever you're trying to make a decision. And don't just blindly follow your passion without a backup plan.
3: That, that chapter, we ended up with the line was like, don't follow your passion, said follow the POT. And then our friend was like, <laughs> pot of gold. And then we were like,
0: sure, sure, yes. yeah, that's, <laughs> what, we that's, yeah. We, that's yeah.
3: what we meant. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and so you you get to kind of have that outlet, though. You know, you said you were initially interested in creative writing. You're obviously getting that outlet to some degree with with the blog and with the book. But now that you have stepped away from the traditional kind of corporate life, even though you don't need the money, do either of you have these type of jobs, professions, small businesses that you would love to try and start up now that money's not really a problem?
3: Oh god, yeah. I mean like, you know, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur and I've wanted to do all the stuff that, you know, you guys do and Grant does and all the like, side hustle stuff. I didn't realize that we would actually be able to turn writing into a side hustle like like we end up doing because, you know, the blog is to kind of taken off a little bit beyond our wild expectations we wrote the book and that got released last month that took off beyond our wild expectations really and it's only been like a month so i don't know where it's going to go but the response to it has been insane and i never actually expected that when we started writing this thing for it to actually turn into a side hustle so now i start to kind of realize you know (laughs) you side hustle people love to romanticize like oh you know do what you love and, and make an etsy store and this kind of stuff but then there's also there's also the The gunk and all of the stress and all this other stuff that comes with running a side hustle as a real job when you have to start dealing with taxes or chasing after your advertisers or chasing after your revenue streams and making sure they pay on time and like all that kind of nitty gritty stuff of being an entrepreneur. I wasn't expecting to enjoy that as much as I did I actually do. So like both of us really enjoy the writing. I also actually wound up enjoying like the bookkeeping side of it and all of like the technical crap of running a blog and making sure that like all like like I love making systems like that's my thing where I like to automate stuff, these business processes up to a point where I, they just send me an email like automatically when things automatically like happen. And I, I love that part of the job.
0: I think one of the reasons why we became successful at these you know side gigs and passion projects after retirement is because we didn't need the money anymore like when we started writing we were thinking like we need to be the next stephanie meyer and she makes a lot of money so let's just write twilight fanfiction, and that doesn't go anywhere right it was only when we actually started writing things that added value to people's lives without asking for the money that it actually came when we weren't expecting it like this book that we we wrote The editor from Penguin actually contacted us and had to convince us to write a book because initially my thought was, no, no, a thousand times no. Do you know how much work it is to write a book? No, I'm supposed to be retired. So it's one of these things that you do, like the motivation changes when you don't need the money anymore and somehow the money comes.
3: Yeah, there's this weird thing that I've noticed that when people try to start side hustles or uh, start their own project and this kind of stuff for the express purposes of making a lot of money, it's like so hard for them and it doesn't like it tends not to happen. Like I've seen so many businesses crash and burn because like small businesses crash and burn because their their primary focus is on getting paid because they need to pay the rent. And like uh, at first I didn't understand it, but then I kind of realized that when your primary motivation is money. You are, you are naturally incentivized to make short-term decisions for the quick payout. And it might incentivize you to do unethical things, cut corners, and do these kinds of things that don't build into long-term good customer relations that then end up paying dividends off long-term. It just becomes a, se- a series of short-term feast or famine type situations until eventually the business kind of like drives into the ground. But it's a completely different dynamic when you start a side hustle or start a business when you don't need the money. Like, when, you know, when you're doing it for a reason other than the financial perspective, then money comes and it just becomes like, I didn't need this, but now there's way too much of it. Right. It must be the fact that your incentives are different. It's like because when we did the book and we did the blog, we weren't trying to make money because God knows you don't reliably make money in creative writing. But because we were doing that, we were just kind of like, OK, let's try to help people. And that decision from way back when, which is like, okay, let's stop writing to try to get rich. Let's just write to help people do something that they want to do, which is how to retire. How do you, and then we, and then that, that, caused us to like start asking questions. What do people need? What are people bad at? What do people like, what are people scared of? How do we, how do we help them alleviate these fears? And a big part of it was investing, right? And a big part of it was also like, what do I do afterwards? So that's kind of the intersection of where the blog is right now, which is what would, the two things that we're good at and the two things that differentiate us, which is a, we, Lay out a step-by-step guide on how to how to build a portfolio that the same portfolio that we did, and B, what do you do afterwards? Travel. So I mean, like that's why we've been traveling ever since, and then putting pictures up and showing people how incredibly cheap it is to travel around the world forever after you retire, and that little like combination of kind of took off, and I had no idea that was going to happen.
2: And what I really like about you guys is actually really funny and awesome that we're talking to you right now. I think Christy, I'm not sure what year that video you had went viral, but. That was like one of the first pieces of content that I found in the financial independence community.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, that video. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, the- I would d- totally wasn't expecting that video to go anywhere. It was just kind of like it, this is exactly. Do you, okay, you want to give
2: com- everyone some context
3: yeah. of what the video is? <laughs> oh, <Yeah. first?
0: laughs> Okay, so we made this video out of frustration in the Toronto housing market because houses were over a million dollars. And I was getting fed up with all my friends saying, like, I have to go into the housing market because I'm fear of fear of missing out. And, you know, everybody's pressuring me to do it. I'm so stressed out at work, but I can't not buy a house because everybody's doing it. So that video was was me kind of distilling the problem with this prescriptive roadmap that our parents have given us, you know, get a job buy a house, work until you're 65, retire with a pension. And I kept seeing my friends get laid off, right? And then I see I see my friends not having a pension and their companies laying them off despite making billions of dollars in profit. And even though they're loyal to their companies, their companies are not loyal to them, which taught me that, hey, this system is broken. I appreciate parents you guys worry about us and you're telling us to go this traditional route, but maybe it worked for you back in 1980s when houses cost $200,000. It doesn't work for us anymore. And I was really tired of being called entitled as a millennial and all those you know things that the media calls us just because we're job hoppers and we're not working, we're not loyal to a company and we're flighty and traveling instead of buying a house. And it was You know, all of these frustrations That's it's not because we're flighty, it's because our jobs are not stable. We may not have a job within the next five years. So having a mortgage for 25 years doesn't make sense if you don't have a job for the next five years. So that video was really coming out of frustration. And we kind of Bryce likes to do video editing. So he kind of just put up something really quick and we kind of threw it up. And the response from that has been just shocking because a lot of people are saying you finally understand the problems that we're struggling with, that this generation is struggling with. You finally understand that it's not our fault and that this guidebook needs to be rewritten. So that's basically the context for the video. And ever since then, yeah, we've been getting a lot of emails from from people saying like, thank you, you know, for helping me out. With the idea that there's a new path that I can follow, it's not just conventional path. And I've been bashing my head against the wall trying to do what my parents tell me to do, and it's not working. And I know now, I know it's not my fault.
3: You, you can also tell that Chrissy gets really riled up when there's an enemy to fight. <laughs> when there's because <laughs> yeah, she gets like really like energized and 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 like like laser eye focus, and that's kind of why I went because it was you know we were at the dinner table, and then she started ranting and raving about old people basically (laughs) and then i I, and i realized you know what i'm gonna get the camera and and we're gonna write like we're gonna write we're gonna try to capture all this kind of stuff down and we're gonna you know write down what you're saying and clean up a little bit and see where it goes from there and that message was the first time we ever and that was that message was the first time anyone ever heard of us in the fi community and that that video is still getting played like like now like i still see the view counters going up so it's like you know what? It's like, yeah, that it really kind of makes her like passionate. So that I think that's what people attach to.
0: The surprising thing about that video is uh, so J. L. Collins, author of Simple Path to Wealth, saw that video and he's like, "I to- completely agree with you." And I was like, "Didn't I just yell at your generation for an entire <laughs> ten minutes straight?"
3: And he's like, "Yeah, we suck." <laughs> he's like we are the
0: worst.
3: <laughs> yeah, we're the worst.
1: <laughs> so spread through there. I heard a few references to travel, and I know we've kind of hinted at it a few times, and. I won't lie, like I romanticize about being in your guys' situation where you're retired because I think about the price per day of travel getting so cheap because you're traveling for a month, two months instead of a week, you know? So I'd love to hear about where all the awesome places that you have traveled, how is travel so affordable? Just walking us through what that looks like.
0: For sure. So initially, we thought it was going to be very expensive. So the original plan was not to travel the world long term it was to travel for a year have a gap year that we never got to have and then come back and settle somewhere in canada or the states that's inexpensive and what we found out was instead of spending 75,000 to 100,000 a year which is what i thought we spent $40,000 a year and a big reason for that is because we traveled and lived like locals instead of doing that vacation thing where, you know, you go on a Saturday, you have to buy expensive flights, you have to come back on a Saturday, then you do the vacation package, and then, you know, you you go to the London, Paris, New York, where everybody goes. We went to places that other people didn't even think of like we went to Estonia we went to Lithuania we went to Poland we went to Portugal and Portugal was actually very surprising because the only thing I knew about Portugal before was getting on a cruise and stopping in Lisbon at a cruise port and then all these tourists just file off and everything's expensive but then when you actually go to other places in Portugal you go to like we went to Aveiro we went to a place called Coimbra Porto Lagos. And then you find that the cost of living in Portugal is actually quite low. You could live on $30,000 a year, $35,000 a year. And that is because the average salary is around 1000 to 1500 euros. a month Uh, month for for people who live in portugal right so they have to like when they live local when locals live there it's not gonna you know it's not gonna be seventy five thousand to a hundred thousand dollars a year for sure like there's you know they have to get their local groceries they have to have rents that make sense for the local salary so then after that discovery we thought hey if we combine like even if we go to expensive places like iceland if we just balance that with inexpensive places like Thailand, where you can rent a nice condo for $600 a month that has a pool and get massages for $10, or you go to, you know, Poland, and the cost of living is similar to uh, Malaysia, then you could easily, easily come in at $40,000 a year without breaking a sweat. So why would we ever go back to expensive metropolitan city? when we can just travel the world forever on $40,000 a year.
3: And in fact, it actually gives us a lot of kind of, you know, we talked about, I talked about like backup plans a little bit before. It gives you a lot of control over your spending. If you are living in a place like California and the city sends you, oh, by the way, your property taxes are up 30%, there is not a whole lot you can do about that, right? I mean, because you you bought the place, you can't move, you're just stuck there and you kind of go, damn it, right? But if you are globally nomadic, you can actually control how much your spending can be simply by choosing how much time to spend in each continent. So, like one of the things that, you know, people that scare retirees is what's called sequence of return risk. And that this happens if you retire right into the cusp of a financial crisis. So, you retire and then bam, stock markets are down 20%. That's bad because if, if that happens right afterwards, you're forced to sell at the worst possible time, which is when you're sitting at a capital loss and then you don't have as many units to recover on the way back up. So that's this is what causes retirements to fail now. So but however, all of the research that kind of shows that these failures assumes that even though you're sitting at a loss, that you're still forced to sell because you've built in this cost of living that you can't change. Well, when you travel, you can change it and you can change it simply by spending more time in Southeast Asia or spending more time in Eastern Europe or, or something like that. You can when we were in Thailand, we were able to we could easily drop our cost of living from about $40,000 down to about twenty twenty-five thousand dollars 25000 And that's yeah. for the two of us, and that's with us getting massages every two days and then eating out every single day and, and going <laughs> and swimming in the ocean or swimming in the pool. every Like, you know, like it's like, if you can increase your quality of life while decrease your cost of living via global travel. And when you combine that with the principles of FIRE, it becomes immensely powerful because nothing can really derail you anymore. Let me give an example. So when you actually retire, you tend to put all your money into index funds and stuff that goes up over over time. So VTSAX or VTI are, are, is, is a big famous one, but really any index fund, you, you tend to concentrate on that. However, when you retire, you care more about income than you do about capital gains. So what you want to do is you want to shift your portfolio from – more equities towards more fixed income, towards things like preferred shares and REITs, and we talk about exactly why you want to do this in the book. But basically, you want to increase the yield of your portfolio. And the yield is a combination of dividends and interest that that your portfolio pays you, even if you don't sell. So if you have a million-dollar portfolio like we did, and your portfolio is yielding three and a half percent-ish, like it was for us, that means your portfolio is paying you $35,000 a year, no matter what the stock market does. Now, if the stock market goes down, you're still going to get paid that amount because even in 2008, dividends didn't really get cut in any significant way. So you're still getting paid about $35,000. And you, if you then combine that with global travel, like so you see, oh, I just retired, the stock market's just plopped. So what I'm gonna, what do you do? Why don't you uh, spend a year in backpacking across Southeast Asia? Your cost of living goes down to about $20,000, $25,000, but your portfolio is still paying you $35,000. So that means even though the stock markets are down, you're still making money as you travel. So every day that we were in Thailand during that time, you're actually making money as we were lying on a beach. So it's like, when you combine it with stuff like that, you can find, you can do these kind of amazing life hacks that ends up in you becoming like, it almost becomes invulnerable to these kinds of risks because we found ways of like kind of cheating the system a little bit in that even when everyone else is like, all of their stocks are falling and they don't know what the heck to do. Like we're sitting on a beach in Thailand making money sipping margaritas. And as a result of that, and as a result of stuff like that, when we left, we had like 1 million, but then when we actually came back four years later, we've been retired for four years, we're actually hitting around, I think it was like 1.3 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Our, Our portfolio has been going up even though we've been retired. So it's like travel is not just this luxury kind of thing. It's almost like if you manage to do it properly, it can actually help make your retirement safer while making your retirement so much more awesome.
2: So one thing I really want to dig into here is it's kind of a unique spin on expenses. And we all know the big three is housing, transportation, and food. But that's kind of totally different when you're always on the road, even though those probably still are the big three. So could you kind of just walk us through each of those? Like, what exactly are you doing for housing? Are you using hotel points, staying in cheap Airbnbs? What are you doing for transportation? Are you travel hacking? Are you taking trains, buses all across the place? And what are you doing for food? Do you make sure you have a place where you can cook and have a kitchen? Are you going out to eat? I'd love if you could just kind of walk us through all those expense categories. So basically sure. yes to everything you just <laughs> said, but yeah. So
0: for housing, we generally tend to use Airbnbs uh, or equivalent, whatever the you know different equivalents are. But, but that allows you to actually save money not just for the rent, but it gives you a kitchen. So if you were to stay in a hotel all the time not only would you spend more money, you would get fatter over time because you would <laughs> constantly be eating out and you have no place to cook. And you would kind of be at the whim of other hotel people because you wouldn't be able to do laundry either. You would have to dry clean everything. You would have to wait until you go out to eat. Somebody else would make the food for you. Whereas Airbnb allows you to kind of feel like you're home no matter where you are because it gives you that feeling of like an enclosed apartment where you could cook your own food. You could do your own laundry. Plus you if you do Airbnb referrals, you actually get Airbnb credits. So when other people sign up, you both get credits as well. And then in terms of transportation, so one of our favorite things is going to Europe because transportation is so inexpensive. You could take very cheap budget airlines with Ryanair or or with EasyJet in Europe and just getting, I think we, we flew five hours. I think it was from Germany to... Las Palmas, which is really southern Spain, like an island off the coast of Africa. And that was 50 US dollars per person. What? on <laughs> yeah. On uh, region. Yeah. We, we have a buddy
3: of ours that we're meeting up in Portugal because we're going to be at a Chautauqua. And then they're like, let's go to Dublin. And I was like, how much are the flights? And he goes, huh. And I'm like, what? Because he, goes, he, goes, he went on Google Flights and he tried to, to book that thing and it was like, it's $20. And I'm like, yep. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's how it is out here. Yeah. He's like, these guys know how to run airlines. Yeah, and, and
0: for the cost of us just going on a subway ride there and back, it's like, we could go to another country and fly three hours within Europe, right? And, and there's really cheap trains and buses as well. I think I think the bus company actually lost money driving us from London, no, not London, from Amsterdam to Belgium because it cost two pounds.
3: Right. Yeah, so it's like- <laughs> or,
0: like less than five dollars, and I'm like, how are they doing this? Are they losing money on gas just driving us I there? Think,
3: uh, yeah, we we had this theory that there was like a in the hold underneath they were just full of drugs. That's the only <laughs> that's the, that's only, the only theory that would have made how, that make sense.
0: How is that possible?
3: But, uh, uh, but yeah, that's for short haul flights. For long haul flights, yeah, we do uh, we we travel do travel hacking hack, as yeah. well. Right now, I'm in the midst of another churn that should net us about fifty thousand aeroplane points each. And uh so that's how so the long haul flights we rely on travel hacking, the short haul flights, especially in Europe and in Southeast Asia, budget airlines. Mm-hmm. But even now, budget airlines are starting to make lot long, like long haul versions of themselves. Norwegian's a great example oh, yeah. of uh, of an We of flew something. from
0: where did we oh we flew from Florida to London for two hundred US dollars.
3: Yeah. So, so they're opening up these like low <laughs> cost.
0: They're, like, yeah.
3: they're they're opening up these low cost routes between really big hubs. Mm-hmm. Like so, basically the ones that come to mind are like JFK, Orlando,
0: uh, Orlando Fort, Fort Lauderdale, yeah. Las Vegas, Tor- Toronto's
3: another one. Las Vegas is LA, another one. LA is another New one. York. And and then and then and then New York. So they're they're opening up these like really long flights, and which you can travel incredible amounts of distances for um for like very little money because they're basically filling. They know that they can fill up the entire plane, and every plane that we ever take is like 100 percent full.
0: Yeah. And then the last one is food. So if we're in Southeast Asia, no one really cooks. The uh, condo we, we were in didn't really even have a kitchen because it's so cheap to go out and eat. And that's a very, it's a cultural thing. Like every, that's like everybody, you know, socializes, everybody goes out to eat. The weather is always nice. You're not holed up in the winter. A meal is less than $2. We were able to eat quite well. Like even going out for sushi, it was less than 20 bucks. And then, yeah, so in Southeast Asia, we don't really have to cook at all. And then when we live in Airbnbs and more expensive places, we'll alternate between going out to eat a few times a week and then cooking for the rest of the time. So it's really not that complicated once you start traveling and then trying that lifestyle like we have two readers that they used to work in san francisco and housing was very expensive there but because they were actually able to work remotely they moved to oaxaca mexico and dropped their rent down to 400 from over 2000 and over a short period of time they were able to become fi and now they're actually traveling the world and last year they just posted their spending report and it's actually $28,000. $28,000. So other people have also replicated this budget just by traveling. And he actually found that going to Aruba and living like a local was still less expensive than living in San Francisco. <laughs> Basically, everything is
3: less expensive than living in San
0: Francisco.
1: <laughs> That's true. I love that little travel piece. Those are some great tips. And it's very inspiring. But I wouldn't feel like it's fair to the listeners if I didn't ask, what are the things to watch out for, though? Like, what are the negatives? What are the, what's the bad part of traveling all the time? Or is there not any?
0: Oh, of course there are. Definitely. <laughs> definitely with travel. So you your relationship has to be quite strong and you will really, you know, test that relationship when you're traveling because things will go wrong. Like you will miss flights. We've missed boat rides before. We've missed trains. Things will go wrong, absolutely. One of the things we like to use to deal with it when things go wrong is we like to say doesn't matter what happened, what do we do now? Right? Because at that point you've already missed the boat. Literally, there's nothing you can do. So what do you do next? Like stop bickering and saying it's your fault that you didn't look at the schedule. And like, it's your fault that you were taking too long to get out of the Airbnb. The boat is already gone. What do we do now? And then once we get into that mindset of doesn't matter whose fault it is, doesn't matter what happened, where do we go from there? That helps a lot. Another thing is it's kind of it's quite difficult to have long relationships, like to build long term relationships. So it does help that we are a couple. So we have each other to keep company. But if you're a single person, it does get kind of lonely after a while because you're making friends and then you're leaving them behind and then you might meet somebody in a city and then leave them behind. So what we've done is that over the time, because we've been traveling for the last four years, we slowed down a lot. In the beginning, we were moving maybe every two or three days. Now we're staying in places for a month, two months, right? And then in the future, likely we will split our time you know, quarterly throughout the year, every three months, we'll live in a different country. And then that will be how we built community with each of those places. Right. So what you can do if you with the relationship piece is that try to alternate between different areas that you like in order to optimize your travel budget. But you can also make friendships that you'll see every two months, every three months, every six months, you know, that kind of thing every year. And then one other thing about travel is For people who are used to having a routine, it is a bit disruptive, right? So you're like constantly like, oh, okay, I have to figure out the next Airbnb and I have to figure out the next train and what about the next flight or whatever it is. So for us, we like to develop a routine after a while instead of just brushing around everywhere and then constantly changing. We like to, you know, stay in an area longer for a month or two and then maybe spend one day planning, one day relaxing and one day doing work so that you have kind of a consistent schedule throughout the week that you know, okay, it's Wednesday. It's time to do work now. And now it's Friday. Okay. It's time to plan the next, you know, six months. And then Monday, it's time to go out and socialize with friends or go get a massage. So definitely helps to kind of create your own routine. If that gets a bit too disruptive.
3: Yeah. And it's, it's gotta be, uh, I've got to say that as much as I love to build up this whole, like completely nomadic, live out of your backpack lifestyle kind of thing. What we're doing is exceedingly rare. Like I think we're the only FI couple out there that has been backpacking continuously for the amount of time that we have. Most people eventually kind of want to settle down there's different styles of traveling basically right you could for example do a thing where you have like one or two places or two or three cities that you like and then spend like a, three or four months in one place and then three or four months in another I know people who who alter between like southern U.S. and like the northern U.S. because like in the northern like in, in one state is like whether that's where all their family is but they want to go down south for the summer so they alternate like that a lot of people do like a hub and spoke system where they have like a, a home, home base, base yeah. where they will rent that out for a long-term period of time and then travel out from there and then like a year later switch the home base and this kind of stuff almost like a military family i suppose Mm -hmm. i know some people who buy a camper van or one of those golf airstream thingies and then just go. They take
0: their home with them. They, they take work,
3: their yeah. home with them, and then they just drive around the continental U.S. or Australia. Or Australia. Australia is actually very mm-hmm. – there's a lot of camper van uh, vanning lifestyle people in Australia for some strange reason, and New Zealand. They do that. Uh, so there's many, many, many different types of global uh, geographic arbitrage and post-FI travel that you can do. Ours is just one, I would probably argue, one of the more extreme versions of it, but there are many different versions of it. And, you know, pick the right one for you, right? Everybody has a personal preference reference. And maybe not, maybe living out of your backpack is not for you, but that's okay. Just, uh, you know, give it a go because it's a lot more fun than just staying in one place and it makes your retirement safer.
2: Well, in the interest of time, this has been a blast. We have a few more questions we like to do at the end of every episode, but one thing we want to make sure we do is if people want to kind of follow along with you, learn more about your story, get a hold of the book that you just wrote that just released last month, where's the best place that people can do all of those things?
0: For sure. Okay. So for our book, you can go to www quitlikeamillionaire.com. And for the workshop that Bryce was talking about, the free one that you can follow, just sign up with your email. You can find that at www.millennial-revolution.com. That's where our blog is. And uh, feel free to send me an email or come say hi, because we're usually answering comments and writing on that blog post on there.
2: Yep. Cool. We'll link that up in the show notes so people don't have
1: to remember the URLs either. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. And then Another thing that we always ask is for those people out there who are on their own path towards financial independence, You know, what is the one tangible tip that you have for them?
0: I would say start investing as soon as possible. Because my biggest problem was that I was so scared of investing because of my scarcity mindset that we actually missed out on three years of bull run because we jumped out of the market after 2008 in order to buy a house. And, you know, that could be tens or thousands of dollars that you're missing out on. And if you put money into a savings account, you're losing money to inflation. So try to get investing as soon as possible and and learn it because it's such a valuable skill and not something that we get taught in schools.
3: And I would say vacation more. This is the homework that I I love to give people (laughs) because uh, with the caveat, don't just go to Disneyland and then just spend all your money on Disney bucks or whatever the heck they do. But uh, like go like treat your vacations as a scouting mission. Actually, like find a place that you might be interested in living long term and then like rent an Airbnb out there for like two, three weeks, bring the entire family along and actually try it out. Measure how much it costs to live there. Measure how much you spend on food and, and, and rent and all this other kind of stuff. You might find that, you know, maybe you can speak Spanish and then the southern coast of Spain is like, you, you find really appealing. You, if you, Especially if you live in a high cost city like New York, LA, or even Boston, you might find that the cost of living in a country that you thought you would never dream of living in full time because, you know, of work, Uh, you might find that the cost of living there is a lot lower than what you think and as a result of that you might find that you're a lot closer to your retirement number than you think because again just because you live in one place and work in one place does not mean that you have to retire there that's a really powerful lesson that we learned that if you live, like you know people in uh, new york they spit they make a ton of money but they spend a ton of money and what i and and then they kind of go and then their fi number when they calculate it's like you know You know, eighteen million dollars or something crazy like that, and I'm like, oh my god, hell, you know, what? Like, what am I supposed to do? And I was like, go live in South Carolina, go live in like Nebraska, go heck, come with us to Thailand, and you're you're like done, like now, right? Based on how much you have, right? So it's like, if you split, if you if you mentally kind of break up the places where you live right now and work and where you could potentially retire to, you could find that you're a lot closer to where you want but at the same time don't blindly just quit your job and just move over there because you may not find that you like it so you have to travel you have to travel you have to try it out vacation more vacation but vacation as a local treat as a scouting mission and see whether you like it you might find that you are closer than you think
2: absolutely love both of those pieces of advice so start investing and vacation more love that bryce the yeah. last question of the podcast, I'm not ready. Justin's not ready. So you're certainly not ready. And this is the wild card question. And this is where people are going to really get a lot of value.
3: <laughs> How are you not ready? You are, I thought you wrote the questions.
2: Oh, no, we don't write this question. We literally think off the top of our head. <laughs> oh, so, God. so
3: it is a random word generator, <laughs> basically.
2: So you've stayed in places all over the world. I'm sure you've probably slept on airport grounds and crazy Airbnbs. I want to hear like the wildest place that you guys have ever stayed.
0: Hmm, that's a really good question
2: there was
3: <laughs> there was this place in Germany that I remember that I was convinced was used for by like prostitutes to like host clients this kind of stuff because we went <laughs> we went there and it was like everything the bed is like oh yeah she remembers red sound.
0: light the, yeah. the bed
3: is like leopard print <laughs> there's like the, a the, mirror
0: <laughs> there's a mirror
3: on the top of the there's a mirror on the side of the wall and a mirror at the top of the on the ceiling
0: you turn on the light everything's red
3: and it like everything glows red <laughs> and I was like I do not run a black light through here because there are a lot of things that I don't want to see. Yeah,
0: was, it was very comfortable. That com- was very interesting. It was
3: very it was
2: comfortable,
1: was very but, very but, I, but I brushed my teeth like crazy the next morning. <laughs> I'm glad I asked that question then. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so I want to thank both of you for taking the time out to come on the show. I mean, your story is just, it's so cool. It's a different take. I mean, it's crazy what you've been able to do after retirement. Just a very inspiring story. And again, thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thank you so much for having
3: us. Till
1: next time, guys. Man, I really enjoyed that episode. I mean, these guys just had such a cool outlook. You can tell they were in the middle of all these people who were striving to save a million dollars for a home and they just like, screw this. There's a better way. What do you think?
2: Yeah, it was so refreshing to kind of hear that side of the story because pretty much everyone was telling them they were absolutely insane. There's like, there's no way you can travel the world for that cheap. It's not sustainable. The 4% rule is a hoax, like all of this stuff, all the bad things you hear about fire or financial independence. And they're like, you know what? We'll just go for it. Worst case scenario, we'll go back. We'll get similar jobs in a couple of years from now if we run out of money. But what they figured out was that they could travel on thirty-five dollars to $40,000 a year, which is less than what they were spending up in Canada, which was just mind boggling. So they're like, you know what? Let's just do this until we get sick of it.
1: Yeah. Two things that always crack me up is, A, people's like blatant disregard for math. I don't know why they just are like, <laughs> ah, I will not believe that. Two is just not understanding that travel can actually be cheaper than living in some of these cities when you factor in that you're taking long trips. So normally what makes a seven day vacation so expensive? Well, you're cost averaging the price of a thousand dollar flight or whatever it is over seven days. Well, when you average that over 30 or 60 days, all of a sudden that flight didn't actually make your per day living expense go up very much. Also, you're not paying for rent back home because you don't have a home. Like there's all these things that you know, if you would actually do the math and then trust it, it just really opens your eyes up to and they were they obviously got very comfortable with it and took action on it.
2: And that's funny that you say that because I remember listening back to this episode. One of the questions I asked was like, so I was like, how do you do this travel for so cheap? You just rent cheap Airbnbs and travel hack and do all this other stuff. And they're like, literally everything you just said is exactly what we do. And like you mentioned before, I mean, you can find an Airbnb for like 20 bucks in most cities if you're willing to stay in just like someone's random spare bedroom. You can easily travel hack if you kind of take advantage of the credit card rewards we've talked about in a bunch of different episodes, Justin. Talking about food, if you've listened back to Managing Monthly Expenses, that episode that Justin and I kind of laid out our expenses, you can clearly eat on a very low budget every month if you're not going out to all these fancy restaurants and you're buying intentional groceries. And then that last category is entertainment. And Christy and Bryce said they do spend some in that category, and that's probably one of their higher categories compared to the other ones. But that's what makes their life fun. That's what makes the travel and experiences fun so memorable is they're spending so little in those main boring categories I like to call them and they are spurging a little bit when they want to in those fun categories. I just think it's an awesome way to live.
1: Yeah and another thing that stuck out to me on the episode which is something that I've seen as a little bit of a common thread I've definitely seen it in my own life is you could see where you know she came from that background of not having much and how that completely changed the way she thought about things having that scarcity mindset and how it was helpful in some ways and harmful in the others where she was good at not spending money because she was used to not having money. But then when you go to the other side of the coin, we're talking about investing where there is this potential to lose it. And you're used to not being able to afford to lose money that that was a big hurdle for her to overcome. So I thought that was just cool to get to hear that dynamic, how she worked through it, how you can use that scarcity mindset to be a positive and not let it hold you back. And just that whole piece that really resonated with me. And I think it'll resonate with a lot of people out there.
2: And these guys have clearly, like I mentioned in the podcast, they were one of the first kind of fire five videos I ever saw. It was Christy talking about how you don't have to follow this traditional narrative. You don't have to grind in a job for 40 years, or retire at 65. And now they're pretty much just traveling the world, teaching other people how to do the exact same thing. And like they mentioned, what you were just talking about, Justin, in their book, Quit Like a Millionaire. They tell people, like, if you're scared, it's going to be okay. Like, this is how you invest. This is how you invest if you're risk averse. This is how you do this. This is how you do geo-arbitrage. And they pretty much just, like they said, lay out a roadmap for people to follow in their footsteps. And it is possible, obviously, they did have a bull market on their side. They had high salaries on their side. You don't have to replicate the exact same story and retire in your early 30s, but this is a replicable process. And if you're someone who wants to go and travel the world and save up a bit of money and do this and do that... They are living, breathing proof that this can be done. So I'm hoping that this episode, for anyone who's thinking about traveling the world, who's thinking about early retirement, can give them a glimmer of hope. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to...
1: Whoa! What was that, Justin? Oh, man, it's a call to action. And this week's call to action is, I think, a really good exercise for everyone to do. And that is kind of sitting down and going through those what-if scenarios, good and bad. Like, if something bad happens, if something good happens... What would you do different in life? How would you change it? What are you doing to hedge that risk? Just kind of thinking through all those different scenarios that your life could take, making some assumptions you know, along the way and just seeing what you come out with. Awesome call to action, Justin.
2: It's never a bad idea to have a backup plan. But if you guys want to follow along with Christy and Bryce's story, hear more about their world travel, it sounds like they're not slowing down anytime soon. They're still going strong. It still costs far less than anyone could have possibly imagined. Or if you want to reference anything we talked about in this episode and check out their awesome new book, Quit Like a Millionaire, you can do that at the show notes at thefiveshow.com revolution. And if you'd like to join one of the most riveting, awesome, inclusive Facebook communities out on the web right now, you can do that at thefiveshow.com community, which will bring you to our private facebook group where you can chat with justin myself and all the other awesome five show listeners and as always if you've been enjoying the episodes up to this point please go onto your app whatever you're listening on hit us with that five star review and awesome rating if you want to maybe type out a few words say great podcast it really gives me and justin the motivation to just keep on chugging find awesome new guests and deliver valuable information so thanks for listening see you on next week's episode of the five show